Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. It's great to see you all today, though. And today, like I said, we are going to be talking about the game Monopoly. Uh, Monopoly is a game that I have a love-hate relationship with. My girls like to play Monopoly, but I hate it so much because it takes forever to finish the game. It starts as a nice, friendly game, and it starts getting competitive, and eight hours later, we finish. (laughs) That's the way it feels. The game was actually invented in 1903 by a lady named Lizzie Maggie, and Lizzie Maggie invented the game, and it was actually called a landlord's game when it first started, and she invented the game to educate people on the dangers of big business. She did this because she she didn't believe that businesses should have as much power and control as they do, and so she wanted them to see, um, hey, when you lose this game, this is how it feels, when there's one dominant figure in the marketplace. Uh, it didn't have its intended effect, though, that she, she wished it did, um, because I think what it actually did is it trained generations of entrepreneurs to crush their opponents in every way that they possibly could. Charles Todd of Philadelphia, he was an avid fan of the landlord game, and in 1932, he had a dinner party with some friends, and uh, his friend Charles Darrow came over to the house, and he brought his family, and after dinner, they played the landlord's game, and Charles Darrow had never played this game before. He was fascinated with it. At the end of the game, before they left, he, he asked his friend to give him all the rules, and he wrote down all the rules to the game. He mapped out what the board looked like, and the very next day, he began manufacturing his own version of the game called Monopoly. It's ironic to me that um, a man who was out of work during the Depression stole Monopoly, passed it off as his own. Basically, what happened is he was greedy, he stole something from a friend, and profited off of it, and that is Monopoly, right? Right? Isn't that what the game of Monopoly is all about, profiting from somebody else's losses? And because of that, Todd refused to ever speak to Darrow ever again. Uh, There's been lots of up and downs in the history of the the game Monopoly. One of my favorite things is in 1941, the British Secret Service, uh, they they began manufacturing the game Monopoly. And the reason they did this is because they would manufacture copies of this game, and within the game, they would hide maps and compasses and cash and other items that would be helpful for prisoners of war to escape. And then they would take these games as a fake charity, and they would go into prisoner of war camps, and they would distribute these games to British prisoners of war so that they could escape, so that they could get away. And so you could say that Monopoly has literally saved people's lives through the years. I think it's fascinating. In January of this year, it was actually announced that they're producing a Monopoly movie, which I can't wait for. It'll be a, a, a movie about four people and a family playing this game for eight hours. It'll be an eight-hour-long movie, them just playing Monopoly endlessly. That's reality TV right there. Like, Real Housewives of Shalakta is not a reality show. <laughs> Watching my family play Monopoly for four hours, that's reality TV right there. One of the things that I found interesting when you look at the official Monopoly website, one of the, one of the encouragements, one of the taglines for the game is bankrupt your opponents to win it all. If that doesn't sound like the heart of Christ, I don't know what does, right? Bankrupt your opponents to win it all. It's not only about winning, but it's about crushing your opponents. 
It's not enough for you to beat them, but you literally have to take everything they have in order for you to win the game. Uh, in philosophy, um, there's this, this phrase called zero-sum game. <laughs> and zero-sum game, if you haven't heard the phrase before, what it basically means is, in order for me to win, you have to lose. In order for me to gain, you have to, in order for me to increase, you have to decrease. What it means is... Um, there's a limited, finite amount of resources. In order for me to have all the resources, that means you are going to lose your resources. And what we see in Monopoly is it is a zero-sum game. There cannot be a win-win. In the culture we live in today, we want win-win situations, right? Well, I got beat eight to nothing, but we don't keep score, and we're all winners here. Like, that's the culture we live in. And I will tell you, Monopoly was not built for that. Monopoly has a win-lose culture. And what you see is this is great for entrepreneurialism, but it's horrible if you're trying to line it up with the culture of heaven. It's great for the culture of earth. It's horrible for the culture of heaven because the culture of heaven says there's opportunities for win-win. You can win and I can win. It's not a zero-sum game. We can work together to see a productive outcome. It is not about me winning and you losing. It's about us working together for the glory of God. In Philippians 2, 3 and 4, it says this, do nothing from rivalry or from conceit, or, or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul would stink at Monopoly, wouldn't he? Because he would land on B&O railroads and he'd go, you know what, I'm going to buy it, but I'm going to give it to you. Because that's what it says in Philippians. We do. We look out for the interests of others. That would not be as nearly a fun a game. And by the way, let me give you a little tip when it comes to Monopoly. If you want the best odds at winning, statistically, you want to buy the railroads and you want to buy the orange properties. Those statistically have the highest odds of people landing on them. So when your kids, when you're playing with your kids and your kids say, I want Boardwalk and Park Place, say, that's great. I'll take the railroads and the orange properties. And you will crush them. So... But Paul would say, hey, we got to look out for each other. But Monopoly says, as soon as you land on a property, you buy that property up, right? First time around the board, you're buying everything you can land on. My luck when I'm playing with my girls is I'll go around the board and I'm landing on luxury tax. I'm landing on chance. I'm landing, you know, go to jail. First time around the board, I'm buying nothing and my girls buy everything up before I ever get a chance, right? Because the goal is you buy everything up, you get it all for yourself. And Paul's saying, in the kingdom of heaven, that is not the way we function. In the kingdom of heaven, we look out for each other, not just ourselves. There's a story I want to share with you. It's in Mark chapter 10, and this is from the life of Jesus. It says this in verse 17. He says, and he, talking of Jesus, was setting out on a journey. A man ran up to him, knelt before him, and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. So I love Jesus' heart. He reflects the glory back to God. He goes, hey, I'm not good. God is good. And I just love how he responds. And then he jumps right into the response. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. So what he's displaying to us is this man is very moral. He's never killed a man, which is a bonus, by the way. But this tells me that this guy's never been to Walmart, 
Because <laughs> if he's been to Walmart, he's wanted to kill some people. He's never tried to get to the airport at 5 o'clock going through the Fort Pitt Tunnel. You know, you, when you merge like eight lanes over, like, because you want to kill somebody when you're doing that, right? That tests your Christianity. And so in this moment, he says, I'm very moral, right? I've, I've never cheated on my spouse. I, I don't defraud people. I don't lie. I don't cheat. I'm a good guy. So what else do I need to do? Because he's expecting Jesus to go, man, you're so good. We're so glad to have you on our team. Come on. Because what we know in Scripture is, and we'll see this in just a moment, but this passage is known as, he's known as the rich young ruler. And it's probably apparent that he's wealthy when he shows up. Because let's be honest, when we see people, isn't it something we naturally do to, to size people up? And he looks at him and he's got to know, okay, this guy's sharp, he's intelligent, he's dressed pretty well. He could really help our ministry out a lot, right? Whew, man, he could help us. So what does he say? He says, do you know the commandments? These are the commandments. And the guy says, I've kept them all for my youth. He says, I'm very moral. At this point, this is when most churches would have been like, come on in. Here's our membership class. We want you to be a part, right? But this is how Jesus responds. Jesus says in verse 21, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I want to point some things out to you. The first thing is, it says, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus sets eyes on him. He sees him, and he doesn't just look at the facade. He doesn't just look at the surface. He sees who this man is, and he has love for him. He loves who he is. So Jesus isn't looking out for himself here. Jesus isn't thinking, man, if this guy becomes a disciple for me, it could really help our ministry. He looks at him and loves him. And he speaks the next words, not because he's trying to get something out of him, but because he's trying to get something to him. And I want you to know something. So many times we come to church with an attitude of, what are they going to try to get out of me? But the healthiest churches are the ones who say, hey, uh, we want to give you an opportunity for something because we're trying to get something to you. And what we see here is Jesus say, man, I love you too much to just bypass this conversation. So we're going to talk about this. And he says, hey, I love you, so go sell everything you've got, give to the poor, and then come follow me. And what it says in verse 22, according to the message, the plain language version, it says, the man's face clouded over. This was the last thing he expected to hear, and he walked off with a heavy heart. He was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let go. He was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let go. See, Jesus understood something when he's looking at this man. He understood that this is a man who has a lot of potential. He has a lot to offer. He has a lot of value. <clears throat> but at the end of the day, there wasn't enough room in this man's heart for Christ. So what Jesus says is, go sell everything you've got, give it to the poor, and then come be my follower. Come be my disciple. See, we focus on the part that he has to give up. Go sell all you have. Man, that seems like a tall order, doesn't it? It doesn't seem reasonable. Doesn't it seem more reasonable for Jesus to say, you know what, why don't you make a decent donation to the ministry and then you can be part of our team, right? But Jesus says, sell it all. Why didn't he say, you know what, sell half? 
I'll tell you why I think. Because if Jesus would have said, sell half, I think Jesus knew that I'm always going to be in contention with that other half. If you sell half of your possessions, there's still only room in your heart for half for me. And Jesus is benevolent and loving and kind and generous and all these things, but I believe that Jesus is ruthless when it comes to our hearts because Jesus doesn't want to share space in our hearts with anything or anyone. So Jesus doesn't want us to give half. Jesus says, whatever is in the way, whatever you trust more than me, whatever you love more than me, you've got to get rid of it. All of it. So what we see here is Jesus speaking directly to this man, not because he's trying to get something from him, but because he's trying to get something to him. What does he say? Sell it all. See, we focus on what he's losing. We focus on what he's giving up. But what Jesus says is, sell it all, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. Do you know, we never know what the man's name is. He's just known as the rich young ruler or the rich young man. How could the story have been different if he would have sold his possessions, given the proceeds to the poor, and become a follower of Jesus? He, he could have potentially could have written a book of the Bible. He could be one of the most famous people we've ever read about in Scripture, but yet he exists in history as a footnote, nameless, because he was unwilling to lay down the thing he loved for something he would love even more. Jesus knew this. And he said, this is an obstacle for you. This is an idol for you. So if you're not willing to lay this down, you can't be my follower. You can't love anything as much as you love me and be my follower. It's impossible. So that's why he doesn't say, just sell half. That's why he doesn't say, just sell some. He says, sell it all. Get rid of it all. See, in Monopoly, we only win when we get it all. But in life, we only win when we're willing to lose it all. See, in the economy of heaven, when we hold everything in our lives loosely, our finances, our time, our talent, our abilities, our families, everything, and we say, God, everything I have, every resource I have, everything I am is yours. You can use it however you want. That's us saying, I'm willing to lose it all for your glory. And so few of us are willing to do that. We're going to talk about this more in the month of October. So next month, we're going to be in a series uh, called Next. And man, I'm telling you, you do not want to miss that series. It'll be really, really, really exciting. Uh, we're going to be sharing some stuff with you about the future of our church that you, <laughs> you don't want to miss it. But one of the things we're going to be talking about next month is this idea that there are tiers of Christianity that you've got the upper tier, and this is reserved for priests and professional pastors and people who preach, people like me, that we're like the creme de la creme, because again, I've got to be a perfect Christian if you don't let me appear, right? Come on. That's a joke, by the way. <laughs> so there's this tier of Christian here, then there's a tier of people who, they go to church all the time, and they give, and they probably serve, and then there's a tier below that, and it's like, well, I'm pretty good, and I go to church sometimes, and I'm going to heaven Right? And so we got these tears, but this is so unbiblical. What we see in, in, in Scripture is there is one tier of Christianity, the called. <laughs> you're either called or you're lost. There is no middle ground. 
And what Jesus is doing here is he is saying, hey, if you are called, this is what I expect of you. If you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to be my follower, I expect you to lay down every other love, every other thing that you value above me so that you can follow me for who I really am. And this is not reserved for missionaries who go overseas. This is not reserved for pastors. This is for every one of us as believers to say, if there's any part of me that loves something or relies on something or trusts in something more than I trust in Christ, then it's an idol. And so Jesus calls this out. See, Jesus wants our whole heart, not a part of our heart. He's not renting space. He is the owner if we are Christians. So we're not lending him part of our heart. He wants it all. In the book of Jeremiah, the nation of Israel is in captivity. And God speaks to the nation through Jeremiah over and over and over about how their hearts are divided. That's the actual word that we see. The the hearts are divided and that they struggle to, to love God for who he really is because Their affections are being pulled in other directions. And so what we see here in Jeremiah 29, and we see this over and over, but in 29, 13, it says this. God is speaking to the nation. He says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart or with all your heart. And what he's saying is this. I believe the reason that many of us today are struggling in our relationship with God is because we're seeking him and we can't find him because we're not seeking him with our whole heart. We're seeking him with a portion of our heart, some leftover part of our heart. Well, I got a little bit of time here. Maybe I'll throw him some scraps here. I've got, <clears throat> I've got a dog named Lulu. I don't have the dog. She has me. Uh, but she is little and like she's eight pounds and she's demon possessed and black eyes. And she really doesn't care for me very much unless Kim is away or unless I'm eating food. If I'm eating food, she thinks I'm delightful because I'm the only person in our house that will feed her from the table. So she will pay all attention to me. She never, she will never come to me. Like I will call for her and she never comes to me unless she thinks I've got food. So sometimes I have to trick her. Like I'll act like I've got something in my hand and be like, Lulu, come. And she'll be like, all right, let's go. But if she's not sure, she'll just wait, like show it to me. (laughs) I think I've got her trained, but reality is she's got me trained. But it's funny because I'll sit at the table and she'll just come wait. And I'll take a little bit of egg and I'll hold it. Come. And she'll come to me and sit on her hind legs and, you know, do tricks, whatever I need her to do. She'll be happy to do that for whatever scraps I'm giving her. I'll give her some scraps, give her a little bit of here and there. And uh, my daughters get on to me, but she loves bacon, so she might be part human. I'm not sure. Uh, because who doesn't love bacon? So I give her a little, you know, little piece. But she will come running. And she's thrilled to get whatever I will give her from the table. The truth is, some of us treat God this way. God, I don't have much time for you. I'm sorry. I mean, man, how am I supposed to get to church when we got ball games? So I'm sorry I'm going to be gone from church for eight weeks, God. You're just, you'll be lucky to get me when I'm back, though. Well, I've watched on the live stream, so that's good enough. Well, I mean, I know, you know, my kids are struggling in their faith, but how am I supposed to get them to youth? They got dance, they got t-ball, they got, man, my marriage is struggling, I don't know what, God, why are you letting this happen? Well, because we're giving him scraps, then we wonder why he's not showing up in our lives. 
We're giving him portions of our time. We're, we're, we're giving him the leftovers. And what we see over and over in Scripture is God is not a leftover God. He wants it all. He wants the good stuff. He wants the best of our time. He wants the best of our finances. He wants the best of our talent. He wants the best because I want you to know this. He is worth the best. <laughs> Jesus doesn't want our leftovers. Mark chapter 10, let me get back to this story. Verse 23, it says this. And Jesus looked around. So the rich young ruler goes away sad because there were many things he was holding on to. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at, this, at the words. But Jesus again said to them, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. See, one of the things Jesus understood then, it's as true then as it is today, that the love of money, that the love of our possessions, that the, um, the elevation of those things into a primary slot in our lives where we value those things above other things, especially above Christ, that's dangerous for us. And those are the things that will keep us from walking out a godly lifestyle, becoming a child of God, and being who God wants us to be. And so when Jesus says how difficult it will be for those who have great wealth to enter the kingdom of God, he's not saying wealth is bad. He's not saying it's bad to have money. What he's saying is it's bad for money to have you. It's bad for wealth to be our primary focus. It's bad for wealth to be elevated over Christ. It becomes an idol. But we see lots of places in Scripture where we're instructed what to do with wealth and how to leverage wealth for the expansion of the kingdom of God. So there's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with having a nice house. There's nothing wrong with having a nice car. But when that becomes the focus of our lives, it's dangerous. And Jesus knows this. So what he's saying is wealthy people, so many times we rely on our wealth, right? And if you're thinking, I'm not very wealthy, I've got bad news for you. Statistically, everyone sitting in this room, everyone watching online is wealthy compared to the vast majority of people living throughout the world. If you have more than two cars in your family, statistically, you're in the top 3% of earners in the world. So, so I want you to understand something. In the context of the United States, you might not be wealthy, but in the context of the world, you are. And for all of us, our wealth, our possessions, the things we have can become an idol because we can lean on those things more than we, than we lean on God. When tough times come, we immediately go, how can I fix this? And if we're gonna be honest, some of us, Visa is an idol because what happens is we get into a financial difficulty and we go, oh, I gotta, I gotta find some help. How do I find help? Visa, MasterCard, Discover. Apple has their own credit card now getting dangerous, right? So what happens? We, we run to these things instead of running to God. We're in financial trouble. This is, this is a functional idol in our lives. And God says, I'm not sharing space. And this is why Jesus said it's going to be difficult for wealthy people to come into the kingdom of heaven. I think one of the reasons we see so many miracles overseas, and we see, I want you to know something. We see miracles happen here. We see people healed of cancer here. 
We've seen people uh, that are literally healed of, of allergies here. I mean, we've prayed for people and seen miraculous things happen. But the reason you see that in such great number overseas is because people overseas don't rely on themselves. They don't rely on their own wealth. They don't rely on their own ability because they don't have wealth. They're making 50 cents a day. They can't go pay for the best doctor. They can't afford to. They can't buy their way out of the situation. They just can't. So they rely on God. And I'm telling you today, there's something about us saying, I'm going to rely on God. Because the monopoly worldview is so much different than the biblical worldview. It's crazy. Because the monopoly worldview says, you do for yourself, you take care of yourself, you rely on yourself. The biblical worldview says, you rely on God no matter what. Put him first. First Timothy chapter 6 from the New Living Translation. Paul's writing to Timothy and he says this. He says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up treasures as a good foundation for the future so that they may, be, uh, they may experience true life. I want you to hear this first part. What he says is, those who are rich in this world, not to be proud, not to trust their money, which is so unreliable. God is not unreliable, but our finances are unreliable. If you don't believe me, think about how quickly your job can go. Western PA, we've seen the rise and fall of oil and natural gas. We've seen the rise and fall of coal, of steel. So we know how quickly a job that's reliable can disappear overnight. Uh, I'm fascinated by the 2008 financial crisis, uh, the housing market burst, and just all the different things that, that went into play with that. And I was reading an article this last week, and I knew I was preaching this message, and I was reading this article, and it was talking about during that crisis, uh, the Chinese and the Russians have so many, they, have, they own so much of U.S. debt uh, through, through bonds that they, the Russians actually contacted the Chinese and floated the idea of flooding the market getting rid of all their, their bonds so it would basically devalue the U.S. dollar, so it would cause the U.S. to go into a tailspin financially. It could have crippled the United States. Um, your, your house value would have been down to nothing overnight. Uh, recession would have been the tip of the iceberg. It would have been horrible. All of a sudden, the dollar that we think is so valuable, it would have crashed in its value. It would have been horrible, an economic nightmare. And, and when I read that, I thought about this verse and thought our, our money is so unreliable at the end of the day. And we put so much value in it. We say, oh, I've got this much in our bank account. And you should save, you should prepare. But understand me, that is not our source. Our finances are not our source for health. Our, not finan our, our finances are not our source for future hope, for security, for safety. Our job is not your source. Our... our Federal government is not our source. At the end of the day, our source has to be God because he's the only one who's reliable. Right. Let me get back to the story. Mark chapter 10, verse 26. And they were exceedingly astonished. The disciples were shocked that Jesus would say, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to go to heaven. And they said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it's impossible, with God 
but, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So let me start with the first statement. They said, who can be saved if this man is not going to be saved? Because what they're doing is they're looking at this man, and they understand a few things. Number one, he's wealthy. If he's wealthy, he's probably educated. If he's educated, he knows the law. And if he knows the law, he's a good Jewish man, then he's probably kept the law. And that's evidence because he said, I've kept the law from my youth, right? So what they see is a man who knows the law, who follows the law. He's sharp, he's intelligent, and he's moral. And they said, if this guy is not going to heaven, what hope does any of us have? We're all in trouble. And then Jesus makes a statement, and if you just look at it at face value, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, because a lot of times, pastors will lift it out of context. And I will tell you, it's still got value if you lift it out of context. Um, its meaning is still there, but it makes more sense in context. So usually we'll use it in the context of faith. Like, hey, I'm believing for big things. It seems impossible, but you know, it's impossible for man, but all things are possible with God. And that's the context we use it in. It still has value that way. But if you look at it in the way Jesus is really talking, what he's saying is this. So they say, if he's not going to heaven, what hope do we have of going to heaven? And Jesus says this, because he says, with man it is impossible, right? So, so understand this. What Jesus is saying is, in your humanity, it's impossible to earn your way to salvation. In your humanity, it's impossible to be good enough or moral enough or nice enough to earn your way to heaven, to, to balance the scales in such a way where God will go, wow, well, I guess they deserve it. I guess I'll let them into heaven. I didn't need to send Jesus after all because look how good they are. Look how moral they are. That's not how it works. So what Jesus says, in your humanity, it's impossible. In your, in your humanity, it, it can't happen that you can earn salvation, that you can ever be good enough or righteous enough before a heavenly righteous God to earn that. You can't. It's impossible. It's impossible in humanity, but with God, all things are possible. What he says is with God, he makes a way. With God, he makes it possible for a flawed, imperfect, messed up human being to make it to heaven to stand before a righteous God, for a righteous God to love us even though we're as big a mess as we are. So what Jesus says is, with man it's impossible, with God all things are possible. Verse 28, and Peter, oh, I love Peter. <laughs> this guy, man, he says some things that are idiotic but I relate to. Does anybody else feel that way? Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. He said, we're not like the rich young ruler. We've left it all. He's like the suck up in class. Do you know what I'm talking about, the brown noser? Well, teacher, uh, uh, did you notice I didn't get out of my seat at all when all the other kids got out of their seat? I did so, aren't you proud of me, teacher? And all the other kids go, oh, give me a break. They roll their eyes. They want to punch the kid. Would you shut up? And this is, this is what Peter, uh, Peter says this, and I can imagine the other disciples going, yeah, we've all done that, buddy, right? We all did it. And Jesus says, Jesus is nicer than I am. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is one who has, uh, no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Let me start with verse 31 here. He says, many 
Who are last will be first, and many who are first will be last. And what he's saying is the economy of heaven is different than the economy of earth. The culture of heaven is different than the culture of earth. Because in the culture of earth, we look at the rich young ruler. He's smart. He's educated. He's rich. He's very moral. And that gets him into heaven in our books. But he says, no, 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 no. He seems like the one who'd be honored for front row seat, right? And he said, but that's not the case in, in the culture of heaven. In the culture of heaven, it's the one who is meek and low and is the reject by the world, the one that, that seems like they would never be invited, the, the JV squad, right? That's, that's who has priority in the culture of heaven. He said, so it's switched. He said, it's not about how much you have. It's not about how good you look in the culture of heaven. So he said, that who, which is last will be first in the culture of heaven, let me back up. And he says this. He, he responds to him and he says, no one has, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers, children and lands. And I, I want to help you because this passage is a passage that's taken out of context. And I've seen this done uh, notably by by ministers on television who will say things like, hey, if you will sell your house and give the proceeds to our ministry, I'm telling you today there's a hundredfold house promise for you here, and that is not what this is saying. <laughs> if you want to sell your house and give the proceeds to church, you can. I'm just not promising you a hundred houses back. <laughs> that is not how this works. Because I've said this before, we never, ever, 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 have I made that clear enough? We never give to get. We never give so we can manipulate God into giving us something. And so what, what we see here, what Jesus is saying here is um, there is joy that comes with that increase in our lives. And that's what we can expect. Because if you left here today and you got a phone call, <laughs> phone rang and you picked it up and they said, hey, um, you don't know us, but we want you to let you know we're from um, Publishers Clearinghouse and we've got great news for you. You've won 100 brand new cars. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Boop. And you'd hang up. Oh, that's nice. You'd probably be pretty, pretty excited, wouldn't you? I mean, even if the car was like an 82 Pinto, it's like, okay, you know, what's 400 times 100? Like, that's still worth something, right? That's a gain. If you got a phone call from HGTV and you won 100 of their dream houses, you'd be pretty excited because there's been increase for you. And what Jesus is saying is anyone who's left house or mother or father or brother or family members, anybody who's laid down something they love for something they'll love even more, which is following the calling of God on their life, they're in for a hundredfold increase in this life. It's a hundredfold increase of joy. And I'll be honest with you, if I could have a hundredfold increase in my bank account or a hundredfold increase in joy, I'll take the joy every day of the week. Because money is unreliable. But God is reliable. <laughs> Some of you are thinking, I'd li I sure like to try the money thing though. I might get a little joy out of that. Did you notice what it says though? You get a hundredfold now, in this time, houses, and he goes through the list, and then Comet says, with persecutions. Did you notice that part? This is what it's saying. I want to help you with this. What it's saying is there's a hundredfold increase in joy, 
but there's a hundredfold increase in persecutions as well. Some of you are not signing up for that, are you? Like, no, thank you. I don't need any more persecution in my life. But what Jesus is saying here to his followers, what he's helping his disciples understand is this. Anytime we lay down something we love, when God asks us to, for something we will love even more, which is what he's calling us to, there's going to be a hundredfold increase in joy. There's going to be a hundredfold increase in persecution. So what he's saying is, it's going to be really hard, but it's going to be really good, and it will be worth it. I, I haven't known anybody who's made that kind of sacrifice who's been like, yeah, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't pursued God. I wish I hadn't followed what he had to say in my life. I think he was wrong. Because what we see here is Jesus say, you get a hundredfold increase of joy in this life. You get a hundredfold persecution in this life. But, but in the life to come, in the, in the world to come, eternal life. He says it's going to be worth it. Um, at the risk of sounding a little bit like Peter who said, look at me. Um, as I was prepping this message, I couldn't help but think about my journey a little bit. And, uh, and I've talked about this some, but I... I I'm always careful to share some of this stuff because I never want it to look like I'm saying yay me or how good I am or anything like that. I want you to know my heart, though. Because like I said earlier, there are not multiple classes of Christian. We're all called. And it'll be six years ago in like two weeks that I got a phone call from a church in Indiana, Pennsylvania that was looking for a pastor. (laughs) When I got the phone call, it was a short call because I was not interested at all. I was very happy in Oklahoma, near family and friends where I grew up, our safety net, relationships, everything we knew. And this guy had the audacity to think I would be happy at this church in Pennsylvania. I just flat told him, I'm not interested. I don't know anybody in Pennsylvania, so I'm not going to Pennsylvania. Would you pray about it? And I said, no, I'm not going to pray about it. I won't even lie to you. I'm not going to pray about it. <laughs> so he agreed, and he called me back about a week later and said, I really think you need to talk to these people. I said, okay, I'll talk to them. We'll see. And I talked to him, and you know how the story ends, obviously. I'm standing here today. Uh, The day we left my hometown to come to Indiana, Pennsylvania, (laughs) I I stood in the driveway of my parents' house. And we'd stayed with them the night before because we'd packed up our house and literally a truck was leaving, girls were in the back and we're driving away. I gave my dad a big hug. And I cried, cried. It was hard. It was hard because I didn't want to leave. I was comfortable. I was happy. People I love, people I do. But I, I was so deeply convicted this is what we were supposed to do that I knew that, God, if you're asking me to lay this down, you're asking me to go to something I'm going to love even more. God, you're not going to take away something I love. 
and give me something that's worse? You're going to give me something better? Does that mean it's going to be easy? No, it's going to be hard. Have I seen a hundredfold increase in joy? Absolutely. Have I seen a hundredfold increase in persecution? Absolutely. Is it worth it? Yes. I still have people who will say, hey, when are you moving home? And I'll tell them I'm home. What are you talking about? Oh, you mean Oklahoma. Oh, you mean Texas. We're not interested. Why? Is it because I'm just a better brand of Christian? No. It's because I trusted what God said. If, if you will lay down what you love, I'll give you something you love even more. If you'll trust me instead of trusting yourself, thank God my plans didn't work out. Thank God God pointed me in the direction of Indiana, Pennsylvania instead of doing what I thought I needed to do. I had to talk about it for five minutes before you had people finally clapped for me. About time. It's the only reason I even did that. What I want you to know today is this. God's calling all of us, all of us, if you are a follower of Jesus, he's calling you to lay down something you love for something you will love even more. He's calling you to say, God, you've got my whole life, my whole heart, every bit of me is yours. Not just Sunday morning at nine o'clock. My whole life is yours. Whatever you ask me to do, I'll do it. Wherever you tell me to go, I'll go. Because I'm telling you today, some of you in this place, um, you know God has put a, a, a call to ministry on your life. You know that there's something in you that says you need to be in, in vocational ministry, working at a church, and you failed to do it because you're finding your security in your job. I believe there's college students that, that you know you're supposed to be doing ministry someday, but you've got a plan laid out, and you've said, I can't do that because I've got a plan. I'm telling you today, we need to lay down something we love for something we're going to love even more. We need to stop putting God on the second shelf and say, God, you have it all. My time, my talent, my finances, I trust you with everything. <laughs> we serve a God who loves us desperately and passionately, but we serve a God who's ruthlessly out to get your whole heart. And he will stop at nothing to get that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you today and we're grateful that you love us. We're grateful that you're not satisfied with 10% or 20 or 50% of our hearts. You want the whole thing. So God, I pray today, Lord, our response would be different than the rich young ruler. Or Lord, our response today would be that we would lay it all down, that it's not about how much we can gain, it's not about how much we can get, but God, it's about at the end of the day, you being glorified through our lives. It's about us saying we're going to lay down things we love for what we're going to love even more. So God, I pray that you would help us surrender it all to you. Lord, I pray for those that struggle today to give their finances. Let them trust you with their finances today. Lord, I pray for those who are struggling because they know there's a there's a desire deep in their heart to serve you in, in the way of vocational pastoral ministry. God, I pray that you would help them lay down what they love for something even better today. God, I pray that you would increase a hundredfold joy in this house. Lord, as we trust you with reckless abandon, chase after the things you've got for us. 
So God, have your way among us. And with your head bowed and your eyes closed today, I just want to ask if you're here and you say to me, Mel, you know what? I'm more like the rich young ruler than I realized today. I've been relying on my own goodness, my own morality to save me. And the truth is, Jesus really isn't first in my life. He's not primary in my life, but I know today I want to lay some things down and make him Lord, make him number one. If that's you, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to bring you forward. I'm not going to make a spectacle of you. I just want to pray with you where you're at. So if you're here today and you say, Mel, I want, I want to be included in that prayer today. I want to pray to, to really make Jesus Lord of my life. And again, maybe you've never prayed that prayer before, but maybe you're here and you're very religious. Maybe, maybe you're going to heaven today, but you recognize the fact that, that Jesus really isn't Lord of all. He doesn't have your whole heart, but today's the day. So if that's you with nobody looking around, would you be bold enough to slip your hand up real high where I can see it? I just want to pray with you and agree with you. Yeah, thank you on my right. Yeah, two, three hands on my right. You can put your hands down. Praise God. Yeah, up in the balcony. Thank you. Yeah, I see you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you on my left. I see you. Who else would say, pray for me, Mel. Include me in this prayer today. I need to make Jesus primary. I need him to have my whole heart, not just a portion of my heart. All right. I'd like every person in this place, whether you raised your hand or not, to pray this prayer with me. Say this out loud. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me so much that you gave your son, Jesus, to pay the price for my sins. From now on, I am yours. You have all of my heart. Use my life for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, let's give God a round of applause. Listen, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, I want you to know something. Scripture says that you're a new creation today, that the old is gone, the new has come, and you are a new creation, and you've got an opportunity to make this the beginning of the rest of your life. So I'm proud of you, I'm excited for you, and I want to help you take the next step. And so if you would, uh, even if you've prayed that prayer before, if today's been a prayer of rededication for you, we want to help you take the next step. And so if you would, take the card that's in the seat back in front of you. On one side it says need prayer, on the other side it says salvation. Fill out the side of the card that says salvation, and then in just a moment when we're finished, when we dismiss, you can take that card over to the information center. We want to give you a free Bible, we want to give you some resources and some, uh, some opportunities to begin to grow in your faith and take the next step in your faith. And if you're watching online uh, and you prayed that prayer with us today to make Jesus Lord of your life, I'm so proud of you and I'm so excited for you, and I'm so grateful that you've taken that step. And we want to help you take another step. We want to help you get connected to life in, uh, in the form of relationships and churches in your area. So if you're somewhere here in Indiana, we'll connect you here at Summit. But if you're somewhere throughout the United States or even the world, we're going to help you find a church that you can connect with and begin to grow in your faith. So thank you for praying that prayer with us. And thank you for being a part of what God is doing. Here's what's going to happen right now. The worship team's going to lead us in one final song. We're going to sing together. We're going to worship our great God together. And while we're doing that, our prayer team's going to come up, and they'll be on either side of the stage near the columns. And if you need prayer for any reason at all today, no matter what it may be, I would love for you to step out as we begin to sing and find one of them and let them agree with you in prayer before you leave today. And then in just a moment, we're done singing. Pastor Ricky Ingram, our youth pastor, he's going to come, and he's going to close us out. But I want to encourage you, please don't leave early unless you have an emergency. Uh, pastor Ricky wants to share a few things that God's been doing in our youth ministry 
ministry and you don't want to miss that update. So please stick around till dismissal. So stay in your feet all over the room. Let's worship together one more time before we go today, guys. I tell you often, I hope you know it, I love you more than you know. And I'm so glad that I get to be your pastor. God bless you guys. Have a great day.